Welcome to episode 202 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelle, Catherine, Emily, Kayla, Maria, Michael, and Penelope. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michelle, Catherine, Emily, Kayla, Maria, Michael, and Penelope for your contributions. This episode is for you. I had a very busy weekend. I'd like to present to you this open talk by Sam V, which I enjoyed very much. He describes himself as a guy who thinks too much. I hope you connect with it. Hi, my name is Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. <laughs> and I, I've been a grateful member of Al-Anon since November 7th of 1994. And I'd like to thank the committee for having me out here today, for Pauline uh, being a great host. Had a really great time, got here yesterday, went to Montoya's with her husband Mike and Jim, had a really good dinner, um, really enjoyed the speakers I've heard, uh, heard last night and today. Um, you know, and I'm the Al-Anon speaker. I really, you know, you, it's great being the Al-Anon speaker because you get to hear Joe B. talk about, you know, going to jail and coming back from jail and going to jail and or Julie being married four times before 30. And you're just going to hear about a guy that just kind of thinks too much <laughs> up here. And, um, and the, I... Um, I do also want to just take a moment to thank the, the committee, the whole committee, for working on this convention. I know that many people put a lot of work into this convention months before people even thought about coming here. And, um, and I just want people to, to, you know, just the committee to know that I really appreciate all the work that happens. And also the tapers. Uh, you know, I, I've, I'm someone who's benefited a whole lot from the experience, strength, and hope from people that I would never have come into contact with had it not been for people that tape. That, that go to conventions and do that work. So I also, you know, very, uh, very grateful for the, um, for people that do that as well. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and I worked on a committee myself when you, an A convention in in, uh, in Iowa. And when you're in Al-Anon, there are just a few things they let you do. And one of them is to, you know, organize the hospitality room. I was hospitality chair and. And one of the, you know, duties I had was to ensure that the 100-cup coffee maker had enough coffee, you know, before. And I remember before the, the main meeting, I think it was Clancy who was speaking that year, and I had a lot of coffee. And, you know, the alcoholics were, you know, filing into that hospitality room, and they don't bring eight-ounce styrofoam cups. To, they have, you know, they have the 16-ounce cups, the big, you know, service station cups, and... And I, you know, and I was watching that kind of meter go down and down. And for years, thanks to Al-Anon, I had been relieved of the obsession uh, with how much an alcoholic drinks. But I do want you to know that that obsession came right back. Um, this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And um, so I, I grew up in what I, I grew up in a normal alcoholic home. Uh, I, you know, my, my father drank all the time. My mother was angry, and my brother and I were scared. And there's just really nothing exceptional about it. I remember some of my earliest memories were at family dinners. And at family dinners, we, you know, my mother insisted we all sit down and have dinner together. And, and, I'll, and I remember that my father started the dinner uh, awake and upright, but at some point during dinner he would pass out in his chair. And what was interesting about my reaction was that I went on with dinner acting as if nothing had happened. And my mother and my brother and I just went on talking, and my mom would clean up the kitchen, turn off the lights, and we would leave him there in his chair overnight. And we just didn't, we also took that on the road. We took that to family dinners, extended family dinners, <laughs> where my father would pass out at big tables. And 
you know, and I just remember feeling so ashamed and so embarrassed that that that, that happened in my family, and and I didn't know why my father drank the way that he did, and I thought that he if he if he if he really wanted to, if he really loved us, he could stop drinking. Um, <clears throat> my father is an Episcopal minister, and we went to his obviously went to his church growing up, and and and. And again, when, um, when when I would go up to communion at my father's church, I, I noticed that you would hardly have to actually tip the chalice to get any wine. The, the chalice, he would fill it completely to the brim. And and I remember sitting back in the pews and communion would be over, and I my mom I could I watched my mom. Uh, you know, early on, I was always watching other people's reactions to see how I should feel and and, and read these situations. And and I you know after after the communion would be over. You know, my father, he'd be behind the altar and you would watch him just slowly down that entire... And I knew there would be an argument. I knew there would be a fight on the way home and, and that's kind of how it always went. Um, <clears throat> and eventually what happened to, to, my, to my father was there was, a, he, there was an intervention and people showed up from, you know, his colleagues and they asked him if he wanted to, uh, to go into treatment and he, and he agreed to go into treatment. I was about 10 years old at the time. And he went to a treatment center for three months. And, and after going into treatment, and to this day, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, my father's never had another drink of alcohol. And, uh, and for that, I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, him in treatment, I remember, was just this, was just this uh, you know, uh, we would go visit him. There were these family meetings on the weekends. We would pile into the car. We would get cigarettes and books and you know, pack these things in the car. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and the treatment center was on the countryside of the island. It was about a half-hour drive, which for Hawaii is like days. So, you know, we would pack all these things in, and we would drive over to the treatment center, and we would give, you know, and, and, I, and I, they had these family meetings, but my brother and I, we, you know, we went out and we played basketball or, or ran around on the grounds. I just didn't really have, I really want any part of anything that was going on inside those rooms. And my father was in there over Christmas, and I remember that, that uh, we, we were there on Christmas Eve, and my father had a little bit of a communion for us with grape juice, and I remember looking at my mom, and she was, I mean, she was crying. She was so relieved and happy about what was going on, and I remember just feeling nothing. I remember feeling that I was due, you know, that, that, uh, that, that for him to stop drinking. And, um, <clears throat> and then when he came home from treatment, um, we were, you know, things, things just went on, and I thought alcoholism was over because alcoholism was drinking. Um, and my father no longer drinks, therefore alcoholism is over. And, and his life started to get better. He was now no longer a passed out in chairs. He was going to meetings. He was going to A meetings every night. So he was gone. And I, and that was when I started to develop new resentment. So my father, my father was gone all the time. And, um, <clears throat> and I really wanted, uh, you know, him to be around. And his life started to get better, but I had the family disease of alcoholism, and my life started just to get progressively stranger and weirder. And, you know, I went into high school doing the things that high school you know, kids do, but a little differently. And, you know, it's just kind of a good example about how my mind works was uh, I thought I, you know, I grew up in Hawaii. I wanted to be like the popular people. I, I want to learn how to surf. And I, so I found someone who gave me a surfboard, and you would think if you were learning how to surf, you would go to a, like a small beach where the waves are close to shore, but I decided to take a surfboard, and I'm going to go out to Diamond Head, where the waves are 200, 300 yards out. So, I'll, you know, that's where people go. I'll, I took the surfboard, I got into the water, I paddled all the way out there, and by the time I get out there, I just realized I don't know how to surf. I really don't know how to do this. 
And and I turn around, I start to paddle back in, and and uh, and I can't get back in, and I think I'm going to die out there. And and I'm sure I did what I did, you know, many times is I, I imagine my own funeral, you know, and I imagine all the people that have hurt, that harmed me at school, how sad they're going to be that I drowned out here, and uh, eventually you know, I make it back, and I'm exhausted, and you know what? I never tried surfing again. <laughs> Because it just doesn't work. Uh, my, my, you know, I went to Hawaii with my wife a couple of years ago, and she said, "Look, they have surfing lessons. You could, you could ask someone to teach you." Like, what a concept! Um, and you know, and early on, I just, I people talk, the speakers talked about it tonight and last night and today. You know how they felt different, and I, and I, and they never felt like they belonged. And I want you to know that I had that same. I never felt like I belonged. Every, I just felt like there was a tutorial on how to live life. And how to be, there must, you know, how to be okay in your own skin. And I just wasn't there. I just wasn't there for that day. And 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 in school. And but I, I clearly fixated on someone who, you know, who would fix me. And her name was Carrie. Um, and I knew that she would be my solution. She didn't even know that I existed, um, <clears throat> though I was completely infatuated with her. And and I would sit at home in my room, and I would I would feel sorry for myself and feel sad and feel the victim and. And I would have, a, I had a 45, for those of you who are very young, that's a disc with a hole in the middle. And I put it on a turntable with a needle uh, where music came out of. And I would put that, I had a, my 45 was Phil Collins against all odds. And I would put that on the record player and I would sit and lie in my bed and cry. And, you know, it would, I'd have to get up and put, the, put it back on. And I'm really grateful that I came into, you know, that I grew up in the 80s because if I had, Grown up with those unlimited playlists, I mean, I just might never, you might have a different speaker. I just might not have ever come out of that room. And, you know, and, and I would just feel sorry for myself. And, it, you know, my family and I occasionally, we would, I knew where she lived and we would drive. And I would, so I put the, I put the, I recorded it on a tape on my Walkman and I would cue it up and I would play it when we drove past her house. And, you know, and I was just so self, I was self-centered, self-involved from the, from the, from day one. And, and, but from my perspective, it was just, you know, she doesn't know me. She doesn't treat me well enough. I mean, I could always find for whatever problem I had, I could always blame, I could always blame someone else. I could always put it on, on, on someone. And, um, <clears throat> clearly life in Hawaii wasn't working out for me well enough. And, and I kind of do want to stop and say that, you know, after my father got sober and, and, and with things, you know, in high school, things were not going well for me at all. And I remember my brother and I, we fought all the time and, and we had one of these fights one day that was really bad. And he ran away from me and he ran into his room and he, he locked the door and I kicked it down. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and I want you to know that my father, but he had been sober for five years then. And, yeah, and I, when I did my inventory years later, I realized that I was the perpetrator of physical violence in the home. Um, my, my grandfather was, I don't know if he was alcoholic or not. Today I know that alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease, but I was told that he drank a lot, and, and he and my, my grandmother had divorced before I was born. And essentially what happened was I was told that he was a horrible person, and so we spent all many times holidays with my grandmother, and I maybe saw my grandfather once a year, and I just was taught that he was a bad person, and so I just kind of inherited a resentment of him, and it must have been because of his own drinking. Um, and all these things are going on in me, and and you know, and my father had recommended that I go to Alatine. I knew what Alatine was. Uh, we would occasionally go to these these AA events, but I just wanted to, I wanted no part of that because I had no you know, I had no ability to look at myself and realize that that maybe I had something to do with my problems.
And so growing up in Hawaii, not working for me, I'm always glad to move. And so when I went to college, I'm going to go to Illinois. And uh, because that's where, you know, because none, and I picked that place because no one from my house school was going there. And it'd be a fresh start. And sure it was. When I got there, I was the guy from Hawaii. There was nobody there from Hawaii. And at parties, I was the, you know, I was the guy that stood out and I, and people liked me. And, and I think Clancy puts it, I've never heard anybody put it as well as he does when he says, if, you know, if, if you're in, being in my life, all I ask from you is that you treat me special all the time. And, and if, if, if you treat me special, I feel average. But when you treat me average, I feel rejected. And that described, and that described me to, you know, perfectly. And eventually, you know, I'm just one of the bunch. And I, you know, hi, Sam. And as soon as they just say it that way, I know it's the beginning of the end. And, um, <clears throat> and I was a regular college student. You know, I drank in college and I had a good time and went to parties. And before I went to college, you know, my father was, um, you know, he, he would say to me, you know, you should be careful about alcoholism and alcohol. You know, you're, there's alcoholism in your family. And so when I went drinking with my friends, I would drink. And then I would ask myself, well, do I feel like I have to have another drink? Do I? And I, you know, but, and I just kept drinking and, and, and I didn't think that I was alcoholic. And again, because I thought that alcoholism was just alcohol. And, and eventually, you know, living in, in Illinois and, you know, I just get this answer, you know, well, if I, you know, well, why don't I go to Russia and live in Russia? So I'd be, because I'll be, it, that's a different place. And so I became a Russian major and I lived in, I went to Russia to study abroad and to work. And, and now, and now I'm, and I, while I'm there, I meet a her, always have to find a her. And the thing about her is, I don't know if she ever liked me very much, but she always seemed to like me more when I bought her lacquered barrettes. I bought, you know, the, in, in Russia, the lacquered, lacquered jewelry is a big thing. And I knew where you could buy all these lacquered barrettes and where I was living. And, and, uh, and when she just didn't seem to like me very much, I would just go shopping for lacquered barrettes. And, and that, and that's my relation. That's the way I have relationships is that, you know, I have to continually find a way that I can do things to you so that you'll like me. Um, <clears throat> And eventually what happened was in order for me to stay there, I had to, uh, I needed, you know, school ended and I decided, well, I'll, I'll, I want to try to make this relationship work. And so I found a job and the job I found was being a guard at the American consulate in St. Petersburg. And uh, I want you to know that I'm no bigger than I, I, than I was then. I'm not guard material at all. And <laughs> the, uh, the only thing, the reason why I got that job was because at the interview they asked me in Russian, you know, they, I put a bomb there, and I told them I could understand that, and, and uh, so I got the job. And <clears throat> and you know, I had a part of my job there was I had a I had a, a mirror on a long pole, and I would take it to the consul's car, and I would go under the car and look for explosives that were possibly placed there. And I, I know how to do that. I'm trained on how to search a car for bombs in case you're interested. And. <laughs> And I would, you know, I would go to the, I would patrol the outside, and one day I'm standing outside in front of the consulate, and I look down the street, and there's protesters with hammer and sickle flags, and they're coming, and they're coming for me. And, uh, and I wonder to myself, how do I get here? And I really wish I was alcoholic, because I could say something like, you know, I took a drink, you know, I drank all night, and I woke up in wherever. I, I, you know, I'm a pre-Alanon. All I have to do is think. And, uh, and, I, and I think, and I get, that's a great idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. Um, you know, I really wish I could blame alcohol for all these crazy decisions, but I completely make all these decisions start raving sober. And when, uh, at, you know, pretty soon it came time for me to leave and return to, um, you know, the United States. And, and while I was in that consulate, one day I'm working at the desk and I reach my hand in the desk and I feel something poke me and I take my hand out and I think, well, that's 
wonder what that was. Uh, you know, a few days go by and, and I can't I can't bend my finger um, and it's starting to swell. And I, and I had this Russian doctor friend of mine and she says, well, you need to take care of that. And she gave me pins and hydrogen peroxide and I start jabbing at my finger trying to drain uh, this wound. And eventually it just crusts over with, with, uh, with black blood and it's time for me to fly back from St. Petersburg, Russia, all the way back to to the States and um, you know, I get to Holland and the, I get to um, Amsterdam in the airport and my finger by now looks so bad that there's a, a nurse, you know, won't come, won't come closer to me than Alan right there and asks me, you know, if I'm okay, if I, if I need some help and I say, I'm fine, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Um, I get on the plane in, in, um, in, in London and again, they, they send some medical personnel onto the plane to talk to me and ask me if I need some help um, because right now it's because the blood is now crusting up all over my finger and and you know, and I tell them I'm okay. And uh, and when I when the plane gets to New York uh, to JFK, I, while I'm getting off the plane, I hit my hand on something, and it just bursts, and blood just starts pouring all down my arm. And and the two Port Authority police officers pick me up, and they put a bandage on my hand, and they they take me to a medical center, and they pull me into, they bring me in, and they say this guy just got back from the Soviet Union, and something's wrong with his hand. And I stop and say, it's actually not the Soviet Union anymore, it's Russia. <laughs> Because my, I'm, I'm in a serious medical condition, but I'm much more concerned that we get the geopolitical names and labels correct. And I have always been that way. I have always, I, with, and faced with a problem in my life, I have always much preferred to focus on some distraction or minutia as opposed to look at what's actually going on in my life. And what happened was I had probably been bit several days before by a brown recluse spider. Um, in that consulate, and and and, uh, and the doctors told me that it's just a, you know just a miracle that um, that I just I didn't lose my finger or my hand or something worse um, that could have happened to me. And um, so I you know I got back to to Illinois and I needed to finish college and I found a roommate that was set up to me, and this roommate um, that I hit it off with, he drank too much. Oh my! How how would I find someone like that? I don't know. And he would do things like he would drink, you know, I would wake up in the morning and the phone would be pulled out of the wall and there'd be vomit in the bathroom. And he said it wasn't him, but there's only two of us living there. And, and it just, it just something inside of me just, just seemed to snap. And I, and, and I felt like I was 10 years old again and that my parents were fighting in the other room, and I was terrified. I would lie awake at night wondering what I'd find the next morning. And, and, I, and I did something which I never did before, which was I called my father and I asked him what to do. Um, and, you know, and I never told my parents anything about what was ever going on in my life. They, the way they learned about my life was when I was living in Europe and traveling around was when they saw the credit card bill pop up in Turkey, they would say, oh, Sam's been to Turkey, because you know, I was just never told them things I was doing. Um, that relationship didn't work out when I got back. You know, she, it was her fault. She wasn't treating me special enough. I broke up with her over email when email was really new. Um, because, of course, I can't do anything to your face. I have no courage. I can't, I can't actually make that decision do that in front of you. And, and my father suggested I go to an Al-Anon meeting. And, uh, and I called, um, I called the, I looked up Al-Anon in the phone book and I, and I, and I found the, uh, I found Al-Anon. I found the meeting at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Urbana, Illinois. And, and I went to my first meeting, and I walked down into the church basement, and there were a lot of guys in leather and tattoos, and I knew enough from my father's, you know, time in A that I didn't think this was Al-Anon. And sure enough, someone, they pointed me over to this kitchen where, you know, there were, you know, and they said the Al-Anon meeting is in there. And I have to say that to this day, as an Al-Anon member, I have this intuitive knack 
whenever I go to a new meeting, if it's in a church or a school, you just look for the smallest room in the building. And, uh, and that's where you find the Al-Anons, you know, huddled over their table and their daily readers. And um, sure enough, and, and I want you to know that, I, that when I, I was so scared as I pushed, I remember walking into that door, and I had no clue what I was going to find on the other side. All I knew was that, you know, my, that I didn't like my life anymore, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And, and I went into that meeting, and I sat down, and I don't remember what they talked about, but what I remember was that people, people nodded their heads when I talked. And which is usually people did this when I talked, and, and and I just started going back to that meeting, and I felt would feel better at that meeting. And people talked to me, and they gave me a meeting list and a newcomers packet. And on my own, I read that newcomers packet, and what I thought it said was that you throw the alcoholic out. Um, you know, I interpreted the literature on my own, and and to this day, I know that Al-Anon literature is better interpreted through a sponsor. And but at that time, so I came back to him. I said, you know, we shouldn't be roommates anymore. And we ended up subletting the apartment to two drug dealers, uh, who wouldn't pay the rent. And I heard a speaker say this. I wish I could give credit uh, to the speaker, but it's just it, it's it, it's the it's the biggest truth for me then, and it's true for me today. Is that the problems in my life are not the problems in my life. The problems in my life are the solutions I think of. When I, when I believe I'm addressing problems in my life. Those have always been the major problems. And, and, and this was a major problem. And that was when I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor because now I'm, I, have, I have a real issue going on here. I have you know, two leases and I don't have a job. And, and, anyway, and, I, and my father was always harassing me to get a sponsor anyway. He always would, whenever I called, he'd say, do you have a sponsor yet? Do you have a sponsor? And I didn't know what a sponsor was and I didn't even want to ask. I just assumed a sponsor was someone who paid for his treatment. You know, kind of like... Race car drivers have sponsors. I guess alcoholics going into treatment have sponsors. And, and, and so I, I eventually did get a, I, I went to a meeting. Someone said, go to this other meeting. There's someone there that you might like. And I went to this meeting, and there was a man there. And, and, you know, and, he, was, and he was someone, he was, he was laughing, he was happy. And he, when he talked about the program, I knew that, I knew that, I, I knew that he knew me. I knew that he, and I knew that I could maybe trust this person. I asked him to be my sponsor. Had I known what I was going to get into when I found a sponsor, I would not have got that person as a sponsor. Because, you know, immediately he had me doing things. He had me calling every day for three weeks. Um, and I did that. And you know what? After calling him every day for three weeks, it was easy to call my sponsor, and I knew his phone number. Um, he said, we're going we're gonna to work the steps. We're going we're gonna to have step assignments, and, and you're gonna, we're going to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and work the steps out of the first... 164 pages, and I'm really grateful I didn't know enough to say, well, that's not conference-approved literature. <laughs> and, you know, and we, and we started reading, and we would, I would have assignments, I would read that book, and then we would get together, and we would read it out loud together in the, in the coffee shops, and at first I'm, you know, I'm reading it very quietly, because of course I'm, I'm afraid that people are going to, what they're going to think of me, and, um, but as I read that book, you know, he had me substitute the word thinking for drinking and alcohol for alcohol, and I just realized it just, it just it fit me perfectly. And what I realized was that was two things. First of all, was that I just totally misunderstood the disease of alcoholism. Was that when I looked at my father, I assumed my father had a drinking problem. If my father would just stop drinking, he would be better. And what I realized, alcoholism is a much more serious disease than that. And that my father had um, a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy. That he had a body that would say that once he put any alcohol into his body, he had a, a craving, a phenomenon of craving would hit him. And, and, that, and that which he would not be able to overcome. And, that, and there's that great line in the doctor's opinion. You know, I thought drinking was about escape. And it says that these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a phenomenon of craving beyond their mental control. Um, 
and and in that doctor's opinion, I could see I could see what my father had, and I could see that that was not it was not his decision. You know, he he did not set out to hurt us. He did not. My father was a sick person, and I resented a sick person. Um, but even better, and even better for me, was that I saw my problem. It was that, and when I substitute the word thinking for drinking, it made complete sense to me. You know, we are people who have lost the ability to control our thinking. I mean, that just described. I could see why I would start off in Hawaii and end up as a guard at a consulate in Russia, just because I just made that decision in my mind. Um, which is why sponsorship is really critical for a person like me, because ideas that are going to kill me come to my mind sounding like common sense. Um, and they come to my mind sounding like common sense today. Um, so, you know, we got into, you know, and we worked the steps, and, and, uh, and, and, the, and for me, uh, you know, for many of you, perhaps, you know, going to having a higher power is a simple thing, but when I started seeing God and reading about that, I had to think, well, I have to go back to that God where I watched my father, you know, drink all that wine behind the altar and then have one life at church and then one life at home, and there was no way I could ever go back to that. And I'm really grateful that when we did the steps, my sponsor had me, you know, when we would read the big book together where it said, you know, you know, read the way I talked about Bill, when Bill writes about the spiritual experience, he says, look at the spiritual appendix. And, you know, so we would go back and we would turn to the spiritual appendix and we read that section where we talked about, you know, that, um, that many spiritual awakenings were of the educational variety, that I didn't have to have this white light experience that Bill writes about in Bill's story and um, that all I needed was honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And, and I could start on a simple level, and I could define my own conception of God. And, and, and it was literally that way for me, just by just starting to say like simple prayers, asking God for help, and, and these things. And, um, <clears throat> and when it came time to do my, you know, to do my third step, you know, I, I took my, when, I, when I took my third step, you know, I felt something. I took my third step with my sponsor on, you know, on, on our knees together in, in his apartment. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and I... And, and as soon as I got up, it was literally, he had the directions for the four-step inventory on the table. <laughs> and it was like, you get up, and I'm, I'm okay, great, I can pause. And, but there's no pause. And sure enough, it says, it says in the big book that we have to, you know, we, that this decision does, you know, is an important decision, but it's not going to mean much if I don't set out on a vigorous course of action to get rid of those things that are blocking my um, relationship with a higher power. And so I immediately got my directions for an inventory, and, you know, I worked on that resentment list, and... Uh, you know, would hide it under my bed every night, and <laughs> for some reason, I thought someone would come in looking for my inventory. <clears throat> I did hear at my at my Al-Anon meetings of an, a friend in Al-Anon who did find her boyfriend's inventory, and and so I did kind of wonder, well, I hope, I don't, no one can find this. And, and and my sponsor said, he said, you know, write that inventory as if no one else is going to read it, just just you, you know. And 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 it was the first time I started to be completely honest with myself um, about about my resentments and. And, you know, and as I wrote my inventory, I, I, you know, I wrote these things down. I could, you know, the, the, with the four-column method, you know, I had the, uh, you know, I would write down, you know, that I bought her, I bought that girlfriend extra barrettes, and she didn't, you know, my resentment, well, she didn't, you know, treat me any better. And, you know, and, and then, of course, I had to add that fourth column, and I hate the fourth column. Um, <clears throat> you know, I love I love the picture in the big book. It's the only picture in the big book, and they messed it up, right? It's just, the, just three columns in the picture. And... You know, but when I when I add the fourth column, you know, what's my part? What did I do to set that ball rolling? And I could see, you know, it was my expectation, you know, that that this that doing this, I would get the result that I want. And and when I went through all my resentments, I, I could see that even if it didn't start with me, it was my attitudes, it was my own disease that just just perpetuated all of that. And um, <clears throat> and it came time to do my fifth step. And you know, my, the biggest resentment I had was towards my father. You know, my father drank too much. 
Uh, my father heard us. My father wasn't there for us. And, you know, and I'm going through this, and, and my sponsor stopped me, and he said, you know, didn't you, uh, you know, didn't you always, you know, have a place to live and shelter, you know, and didn't you always have food to eat? Um, you know, and, and my, my father sent me to, I went to private school, and my parents paid for my college education. And, uh, and, 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 you know, my father, my sponsor said to me, said, you know, you may not have the father that you wanted, but you had the father that you needed. And when he said that to me, I, I could see that my, that my resentment had twisted my view of my father and that I hated someone that had a disease. Um, and all of the good things that my father did for me, I somehow conveniently swept under the rug. When I went to college in Illinois, I thought I was being very brave and, I, and you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to 5,000 miles away from home. But the, the day before they were supposed to go back, we were having dinner and, and, I, and I sobbed and I ran out of the restaurant and my father came running out after me to uh, comfort me and console me. You know, none of those things were in my inventory. None of those things that my father did for me to care for me. And that's what resentment does to me. You know, resentment, when a resentment says it's the number one offender, it, what it means in my, my interpretation is that it, it's offensive. Um, and that, and, and when I, it's kind of like the instant football, the football replay is how my mind works is right. They say that, you know, the receiver gets hit by the defensive back and they go, oh, let's watch that again. And, uh, and, uh, and what happens in my mind is that as I do that, and every time I replay that in my mind, I don't know that I'm doing this, but I make, I make the other person just a little bit more evil, and I make myself just a little more innocent. And over years of doing that, by the time I'm completely blameless, and that person is completely in the wrong. Um, and that's what resentment does for me today. And so I'm really, you know, those, those pages, when I have a resentment today, I turn quickly to the big book, and I turn quickly to that because I, when I read that when I had that inventory and I looked at that where it says that, you know, we were prepared to take, you know, what we saw was that the world and its people really dominated us. And I didn't really like that. I, I, I thought all these things I felt, you know, that did work. Like that, that resentment, that would, that would change you. And, um, and then the line after that where it says, what we, you know, in that state, the wrongdoing of others, real or imagined, had power to actually kill. And that's, you know, what that really says to me is that absolutely nothing has to happen to me out here for me to die from the disease of alcoholism. Because all I have to do is, is, is create something in my mind and get that and, and blame someone, and, but nothing really has to happen. I mean, that's the severity of my condition. Um, <clears throat> so I worked the steps with that sponsor, and eventually what happened was I, I decided to go back to, uh, to graduate school. I was working in a college bookstore. And I decided to go back to my master's in writing, and I went to Purdue from Illinois. And, um, and, and I, you know, when I got there, you know, the Al-Anon, they didn't do it right there. And, you know, and I would chair meetings, and I would say, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to go around in a circle. We're not going to do this crazy crosstalk thing. And, and they kept doing what they were doing. And, and, um, and then success just started to become, you know, I had some success in my first year. I won this award. Um, and, uh, and success just started to creep back and become much more important. It became so much that in my third year, when I was going to the mailbox, when, when they were sending out the notifications, I was shaking um, because I had, to, I had to win. You know, I had to be the best. Again, it's, for me, it was all or nothing. It's either I'm the best around on campus or I'm the worst. Um, <clears throat> and around that time, you know, I had a sponsor, but I wasn't really telling my sponsor, I wasn't really telling my sponsor things before I was doing them. Or I wasn't really telling sponsor my sponsor things at all. I had to have a surgery, and um, and when the when I got the bill, someone in you know someone I went to school with said, you know, well you can claim your charity case. I have an inheritance, 
you know, that's set up. And, and I called the hospital and they asked me some questions. They didn't ask me the question that I, where I thought I would tell them the truth. And because they didn't ask me that question, I didn't tell them about that money. And they claimed that was a charity case and they waived all that money that I had to pay them for this surgery. And I justified that in my mind. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, and what happens? What happened was was that after that that time there at Purdue, you know, I I just my, my program had just really changed, and it and it didn't change overnight, but it just changed slowly by putting success, wanting that to be the, the prime thing in my life. And I and I, and when I finished there, I had a friend who was living in Iowa, and he said, "Why don't you move out here?" And and I moved out there. I didn't have a job, but he but the program was good. He said so. I moved out there, and and thankfully I, I got active again, and I got a sponsor, and and um, and I and I picked a home group, uh, um, and I the the Sunday my home group to, which I have to this day. It's a Sunday night Al-Anon book study in Iowa City. It's a great group, just like your home group is. And my my sponsor asked for me to you know to to, to show up for meetings early, and you know to dress like I am now for my home group meeting, just just out of respect for the program that's saving my life. And I did that, and I and I got involved again. I got active. I started sponsoring men, and I got active in the service structure. Um, and things started to get better. I had a part time, but 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 what happened for me was um, was that I really loved being of service in Al-Anon, you know, and I loved you know newcomers in Al-Anon. There isn't there is to this day there's there's no one I treat better in my life than a newcomer. You know, a newcomer walks in the door. You know, we all feel that way, I, and I definitely felt that way. You know, would you know greet them, make them feel welcome, and. And I got a job teaching part-time at the community college. And what happened for me was, you know, I was secretary for my home group, and I would spend more time on the flyers for my meeting than I would preparing for class. <laughs> um, because, you know, it was hard to prepare for class. And, 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 I, when I, and my sponsors, one day my sponsor said, to, I was talking about my sponsor because I wasn't ready for class, and he said, yes. You know, he said, I know this about you. He said, you like to always do the easy thing. Um, you know, and he, and he was right, and 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 some things started to happen in terms of my teaching. Was that my teaching evaluations were bad, um, and uh, and I wasn't changing. And then one day, I'm walking past the dean's office, and there's three of my students in the dean's office, and they're complaining about me. And uh, and my solution at the time, the best solution I had at the time, was to take a detour, so that when I came to work, I would not walk past the dean's office. I mean, that was the solution that I had to that problem. And, um, but thankfully, you know, I, I mean, thankfully I knew enough to know that when, when the, the you-know-what hits the fan, that I could turn to my sponsor. And when I saw that, when I saw what was going on in the dean's office, I went down the hall and I called my sponsor on a payphone. Um, and I was just beside myself because it's one thing for me, to, for me to know, like, well, I'm not doing a good job. But for other people to know, you know, that type of humiliation or that shame, you know, I just couldn't live with that. And... And what my sponsor wanted me to do was to go directly into my dean's office and tell him that I knew that I had a problem and ask him what I could do to fix it. And I want you to know that that was not even a solution that had entered my mind <laughs> until that phone call. And I say that because this has happened to me in my recovery, which is that surrender, you know, you hear surrender, like, yeah, surrender. And for what me, all surrender means, in my experience, is that, is that I'm willing to take an action that I don't think is the right idea for my life. I mean, is, that's, that's surrender. And, that, and at that moment, that was, that was a test for me whether I was going to surrender. Because that was not the thing I wanted. To, that was not what I thought was the right thing to do. And I, and, but I did it anyway. Because that's what I've heard here. And so I walked into the dean's office and I said, you know, I clearly have a problem here and I want to do something about it. And he said, you know, I might not have been willing to work with you, but I'm willing to work with you because you came in here. And what I had to do was I had to find out how to become a teacher. 
And I had to do, you know, and my sponsor, I had to talk to other teachers. I had to find people, you know, and sit down with them and ask them what they do. And I learned about planning and I learned about all these basic things that teachers learn to do that somehow I just think I should know. How, I feel like I should just walk in some place and know how to do it without even asking. Um, and, you know, I started working on my teaching. And, and what happened was my, my teaching evaluations, they started to get better and they became, you know, I started to become like an average teacher. And they told me I was being reviewed in this, you know, off by, by a committee. And, and I knew the person who managed the student evaluations. And it had been, you know, after a couple of years of trying to be, trying to do better, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I came to him and I said, you know, am I, am I being, still being reviewed? And he said, well, no, because you're off the, you know, what list now. Um, <clears throat> and so when I, when I decided to go back to him for my doctoral program and when I left there, they actually asked me to stay and keep teaching. And so, you know, when I left there, I could leave that job feeling like I was not leaving a wreck or a mess. You know, I could leave looking people in the eye, and um, and that's what that's what this program has given me. This this program has given me the ability in my life for when I totally mess up, um, that if I mess things up, if I follow directions, I can get back into being, you know, and live life and, and be a principled person. And um, you know, and along the way. I, you know, there were other things that I needed to clean up and, you know, amends I didn't make. And, I, you know, my grandfather, for example, was, you know, I couldn't, because I basically cut him out of my life and ignored him. And I heard, I heard Sharon Barker talk about sending uh, cards to her father. You know, she owed her, her, owed her father all this money and she would send all these notes to her father over the years. And so what happened was I started, you know, sending my, my grandfather, who by this time was in a nursing home, uh, you know, I would send him like postcards for what I was doing and I found out that he liked the National Geographic magazine and so I sent him a subscription and when I would go home to Hawaii, I would go visit him and my family wouldn't visit him and they told me he won't know you and, I, and one of these years, you know, I walked in, I went to found out where he was and I went to walk in and he said, Samuel Alexander Van Horn. And he was a crusty, I mean, he was a Marine. I mean, he was a, he was a Marine and um, who was in the uh, Pacific Theater in, in World War II and and I sat with him, and I would spend time with him, and um, you know, I found, and, and I could see the good in him. And, and what I realized was that was that for all those years, I hated him. I, I didn't even know who he was, and I don't know if he had this disease or not. But um, but people here taught me how to be a son. People here taught me how to be an employee, and people here taught me how to be a grandson. And part of the basic thing about being a grandson is you is, is you visit your grandfather, and you um, and you you know, and you do those loving things, and. Um, and what happened was years, uh, you know, a few years later he died and we were going through his things and we found, going through his things, we found some of these postcards that I had sent him years ago. Um, and when I saw those postcards, I knew the value of action in this program. You know, you know, for me, I'm so arrogant that I just think that, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> you should, you know, and everything should be fine. And, 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 you know, the power of action is that I take these little steps that are centered on someone else that aren't centered on me and and the value of that it can 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 be can be tremendous over time and when, and when he had a, he had a funeral because he was in a veteran he, you know he had he was he was interned at the, his ashes were interned at the memorial you know punchbowl cemetery in, in Hawaii and they gave me his flag and and I and I, and I have that flag today and um <clears throat> And, and I, you know, and when I was becoming a better teacher, what happened was, was, was I learned how to use this specific technology at, at, you know, at the community college where I was working in. And that enabled me to get a job, um, supporting other, while I was doing my doctoral program, I, my day job was to support other instructors who were using this technology. 
And, and my sponsor said, you know, you go to work and your job is to fit yourself to be of maximum service to those about you. And being of service to others doesn't stop when you show up at work. And so I focused, you know, on doing the best job I could. And, and, and what happened was one day was they, they needed someone to coordinate the technical support for the office of the president. Which was not a part of the uh, part of the organization I worked in, but the head of the organization said, "I want Sam to go in there, and I want Sam to be our person in that office." And, and they trusted me with things like the president's password, and you know. And I, I remember when my job changed, and I and I got to walk into that office. I thought, "How do I get here? You know, how do you get from being someone who is you know a bad employee to being someone that they trust at the highest levels and all i could think of was it's because of the principles of this program having a sponsor and doing things that i don't want to do because other people know because that they are the right things for me um, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> today you know the um, uh, while i was uh, while i was in graduate school i met i met uh, you know we had a big flood in iowa and they needed people to sandbag down by the university. Uh, and I remember, you know, well, be of service. I'm going to head down. I can lift a sandbag. I'm going to go on the sandbag. And, and there was a woman I met at the sandbagging line. And we were, um, you know, we were both trying to take charge, actually. I don't know. I don't know if you ever sandbag rivers, but there's this is the only place where I've ever been where there's actually more there's actually more worker bees than like generals. You know, you actually need people to direct. And I thought, you know, I'm an Al I'm an Al-Anon. I, I like to be in charge. And she was actually trying to be in charge and, and you know and and, and in, in uh in and I you know and I, we met I met we met and a few years later I decided to go back to church and I walk into the church and she's there. Um <clears throat> and I notice her and every time I go to church I look to see if she's there and I ask my sponsor I say, can you ask out someone at who's at your church? <laughs> so I didn't know. And, uh, and my sponsor said, well, of course, why not? And, and uh, one day the reading was about Bathsheba, and I thought, today is as good as time as ever. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I had went up to her, and I asked this person out, and, we, and next month we'll be married for six years. And, but, you know, but prior to that time, you know, and Julie talked about this, you know, dating in, dating in the program is like growing up in public. You know, and I had to, I had to learn about dating, and I had to learn about you know being a principled person, and you know if things don't work out, that you know no one gets the meeting, um, you know that you know that you learn how to you know. And for a while, all of my, I mean, before Al-Anon, what happened was was that I always broke up. I just you know I would either send you letters or phone call you or send you an email to break up with you because I've decided it's not work. And the first time I dated. My you know, the first time I dated in recovery, I actually stuck in with it where someone broke up with me. And it shocked me. And it hurt. <laughs> and I didn't want to do it again. And, but, you know, my sponsor kept having me. You just, 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 just keep practicing. And, and, um, and I'm very grateful. You know, but being in the program doesn't mean that life is all, you know, ever, that roses and triumphs. I mean, my, 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 my wife's mother died when, when we were engaged. She died of cancer. And I, just, and I never remember feeling that type of pain and um, when they were saying goodbye to each other, um, you know, I, I walked, I ran out of there crying, and I called my sponsor, and because, you know, what do you do? And then my sponsor said to me that, you know, during this time, you, you know, you be of service to the family. That's all you can do. Um, and so I would, you know, I would drive them places, and I would get them food, and if there was medicine I needed to get, I just, I just, I just did the things that needed to be done. Um, you know, and very often today, that's these are the answers to, to almost every problem I have today. Is 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 to be of service and to give and to give more than I want to give. And what, 
And because prior to this program and even in this program, my answer was always to take. You know, because deep down, I, you know, I am a taker of things and a user of people. You know, what could you give to me? Why aren't you enough for me? And, and you know, today I have a program that says if I feel like I'm not getting enough, it's really the problem is, is this is an area where I can be giving more. And the true freedom of being an Al-Anon and, and, and this program is that, is that if I follow these principles and if I do my best to give and serve to those around me, um, whether it's people, and it doesn't have to be the people I sponsor or people, um, people in my meetings or people in, uh, it can be people at, at my job. But I get to feel really good. You know, I get the benefits of that. And um, a few years ago, you know, I got a really good lesson in this. I was, um, I was, you know, sponsoring someone, and and we were. I went to a regular Tuesday night newcomers meeting, and we would meet for. I, I met my sponsee for dinner the, that night, and and uh, it turned out we had a horrible ice storm in, in Iowa City, and the area where our meeting was, the you know, we lost complete power. You know, we found a place to go. We had dinner where there was power, and you know, it you know, six thirty rolled around, and and it's time to head to the meeting because I was taught, you know, t if it's not my home group meeting, then ten minutes early is on time. If it's my home group meeting, then you know, obviously more than ten minutes. But so we needed to get there early. So we got in the car, and uh, you know, just just by on the off chance, right? Power is completely out in the whole neighborhood. There's not a light on, you know. But we drive up, drive up to the church. And I wait in the parking lot there. You know, I'll just wait here. Um, and sure enough, two headlights, you know, come down the road, and someone pulls into the parking lot, a newcomer I've never seen before, and asks, is there a meeting here tonight? And I said, well, there isn't any meeting here, <laughs> but we can go find one. And, you know, we got into the car, we, we headed across town to where there was power, and we got out, and we had that meeting um, and, and that. And I don't know if that person came back, but I want you to know that I knew without a doubt that I was doing exactly what my higher power would have me do. Um, and, and I believe this is what the big book talks about. And there's this great part of working with others where, where Bill talks about you know, keeping on the firing line of life because um, it's that is that we are, where we are safe. And for me, that firing line of life is showing up early for my meetings. Um, it's, it's being near the front door. It's, it's welcoming people that are new to the meeting. Um, it's getting to the front door before that when the meeting ends because those newcomers if no one stops them you know they will be out the door so it means not turning to my friends it means making sure that i have every everything about me has the attitude that there's room for one more um, in the meetings because people did that for me and if people had not done that for me i don't know if i would be here today and so i am very grateful for the opportunity to be here um, at your convention um, i wish you many more years of success and uh, thank you very much, and God bless. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. I was at my step meeting, and it was the first Saturday of the month, so one of the tables at that meeting is working our way through the Al-Anon Blueprint for Progress Fourth Step Workbook, which is the Searching and Fearless Moral Inventory. And we're going through character traits. And one of the questions was about emotional stability versus being panicky. I realized that as I was answering that question that I had been feeling sort of panicky all week from a variety of sources from a conversation that I had had with one of my kids on Sunday where we were in 
pretty severe disagreement about their opinions on some issues that are very different from mine. And I had difficulty really accepting that. And some other things that happened during the week, a dispute with an insurance company and some other things in that I had been letting those feelings sort of not in my stomach. I had not been using the tools of this program, you know, for example, uh, making gratitude lists to help me let go, to help me sort of unknot that knot. And that was a, it was one of those things where you go to a meeting and you hear something you need to hear that you didn't even know you needed to hear. And that's, that's what happened to me at that meeting on Saturday. We also have a short share that Diana sent us about where she is in her recovery journey. Hi, Diana here. I'm sitting here tonight doing the fourth step for the first time and resentment inventory. <laughs> I kind of chuckle because... I don't even know how to respond <laughs> to these four pages of resentments that I've written. I mean, it's very intense. It's very overwhelming. I'll be honest, it's shocking. I think particularly shocking that I've had some resentment against God. I've shared previously that I had to detach from my mother, my father, and my sister. And so that has made me cling to God even more because he had to be a father to me and that was my story and so I always thought me and God were perfect we got our own relationship going on you know we're fine <laughs> and I'm reading these resentments and just really surprised <laughs> that the truth of what I believe is not that I've blessed my story and realized that that has made me who I am and it's this great bright light, but that at times I felt crushed and perplexed and forsaken at the dark roads that he's led me down. Ultimately, I guess, if I'm being really honest, I'm dealing with some distrust, right? So I'm just sitting here feeling overwhelmed, you know, reading this four pages of resentment. Like, where do I go from here? You know, like now I've opened Pandora's box and what now, you know? So I kind of was stepping away and um, I decided, well, I'm going to read a scripture. So I'm going to share this. I know not everybody is spiritual, but for those who are, here you go. So I opened this scripture in Ecclesiastes 11. It says, just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones form in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything, right? Wow. I just felt like God showed up in my living room right now because he says, basically, he's, he's checking me, saying, you're not the creator and maker of people. I am. You don't know how to, how to grow a life. I do. And so I think sometimes we're playing God. And sometimes it's like we think, especially being codependent or an Al-Anon, that we got it all figured out. We're the managers of the world. Step aside, God, I got this. You just need to get on board with my plan, <laughs> right? <laughs> and really, he's like, no, I'm, I'm running the world and you're a part of my ultimate plan and story. And it just kind of made me feel like, oh, okay. You know, I want to get to the point where I don't curse the dark places, where I'm grateful for every piece of my story. 
I can honestly say that I'm not totally there yet, but I'm trying to get there. And just to share one other quick thing, I'm a painter and I got to thinking that most of the paintings that I've done, I know that a few times I've really messed up a painting or maybe to put too much paint on the canvas or drew some funky tree. And it always happens that that is the, my favorite part of the painting is the flaw. And I think sometimes that's true in our own life. The biggest scar and the biggest wound of our life is sometimes our greatest blessing. And I think it can be a platform in which we can help others and it gives, sows a lot of compassion into us, sows a lot of empathy. And I know I work for a hospital and I've heard so many stories of people, um, you know, one gentleman, his best friend got into a really bad car wreck and, and that inspired him to be a nurse. And, you know, there's just so many stories like that where out of these painful situations, something beautiful is born. So I just wanted to share that tonight and hope and inspiration and uh, we're growing one day at a time. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Diana, for that share. Got some emails and other feedback this week. Michael said, thank you again for this service, Spencer. It is immeasurably helpful. Thank you, Michael. Penelope wrote, thank you for your podcast. I look forward to it every week. And Penelope, I try to make it every week. Sometimes I'm able to put more into it than, than other times, but I'm glad that I have this talk that I was able to share with you. Jeff wrote to us, Hi, Spencer. Just wanted to thank you for your podcast. I am such an Al-Anon. I don't go to meetings because I have schizophrenia and get manic while attending. I've not drank in 14 years, not because I'm an alcoholic, but because of being brought up in an alcoholic home. Never wanted to end up like those I saw drunk. Thanks for all the help. I was in AA for six years and went through the steps with a sponsor who had 24 years in the program and is also in an organization called the Mankind Project, as am I. I meet with my mentor every so often. I'm in assisted living and do go to two self-help type meetings per week. When I did step four, I felt broken. Step five was good, but I felt a lot of self-pity and self-hatred for about two years. And for two years now, I've been doing meta meditation and have found that to help me love myself and others. I quit smoking cigarettes four years ago, the one thing I truly was addicted to. But see, I didn't quit. My higher power took the cravings away, cold turkey. Imagine that, a schizophrenic that doesn't smoke. I'm truly blessed. Thanks again so much for the work you do. And thank you, Jeff, for your support over the years. I'm glad to hear that, that you're doing well. Jen left some comments on the website on episode 96 about isolation. She wrote, I found this site about two weeks ago. Now I listen to one episode a day. I can't believe how much each episode had to offer. This one really hit home. You revealed forms of isolation I never considered. Thank you both. And on episode 104 about judgment, I heard a lot of confessional honesty. Thank you. Makes me feel better as I relate to most of it. Thanks for your feedback, Jen. And I just want to note that that is the core of our program of recovery is being able to share our experience, strength, and hope and have other people relate to it and grow from it. Thanks again for the, for the feedback. Lori posted a question on 
about episode 200, which was the interview with Bren Black about her song, Daddy's Medicine. Lori wrote, I'm interested in seeing a link to the dance she refers to at the beginning of the show. Can you post a link? Thank you. And I responded, the video link is posted in episode 197 about obsessive thinking, but I've also added it to the show notes for episode 200 because it was mentioned there, and so that makes it easier, hopefully, for you to find. Kelly wrote with a question, I was listening to your podcast yesterday. I've been a faithful listener for some time now. And your co-host, Eric, mentioned a list of neutral statements he found very helpful as part of your conversation on living the principles. Spencer, you mentioned you would put them in the show notes. Where would I find that? Looked on your website, but did not see that choice. Please advise. Thanks so much for all you do and provide through this amazing resource. I will continue to sing its praises to all who have ears to hear. You know, there were a few that I had copied into the show notes, but I didn't post the whole list right away. I had a photograph and I wanted to transcribe it, but I realized if I wait to transcribe it, it might not happen. So I added a photo of the page that Eric talked about that lists a number of neutral responses. And that's at the bottom of the show notes. You have to go all the way down below the videos. And you can find those at therecovery.show slash 201. And any episode that I mentioned by number, you can go to therecovery.show slash that number and find it. We also have uh, a search page or a search box. If you're on your computer, there's a search box near the top of the page on the right. If you're on a phone or a tablet, there's a search in the menu at the at the top of the page. And if you tap on that, it'll take you to a page where you can type in uh, whatever term you're searching for and, and hopefully find what you're looking for. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We do have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Michelle, Catherine, Emily, Kayla, Maria, Michael, and Penelope did. And, and thank you so much for your continued support, all of you whether you, this is your first time or you've done it before. I just want to thank everybody for your support in whatever form you give it. Maybe it's sharing the podcast with your friends by directing them to the recovery.show or just by listening. We are here for you. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.